Hello, my name's Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This week, what the Met must do next. After the resignation of Commissioner Cressida Dick, Britain's most powerful police force is under intense scrutiny. I've been speaking to people at the heart of some of its worst failures. I'd been handcuffed and on the floor of a cell with three officers on top of me. They'd been twisting my arms around and they tied my legs together and cut my clothes off with scissors. They'd hit my head off the concrete floor. I couldn't breathe because of the scarf they were pulling around my neck. If the Met were this incompetent with every serious crime, regardless of the victim's origin or sexuality, then you know, rapists and murderers would essentially be going unpoliced. I have absolutely no interest in what the Met is promising. I didn't think it was life-changing that Cressida Dick stepped down because it doesn't make a difference because she steps down and someone else steps up. Before we get stuck into that, just a reminder that Byline Times doesn't have a traditional proprietor pulling our strings. There are no advertisers or corporate backers telling us what to say. Our journalism is funded by people like you, who take out a subscription to the monthly Byline Times newspaper. Those subscriptions also help support Byline TV, this podcast, and a news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com, which is where you'll find details of how to subscribe. That's at bylinetimes.com. Britain's biggest and most powerful police force, the Met, is looking for a new commissioner to replace Cressida Dick. She quit after losing the confidence of London Mayor Sadiq Khan. The final straw was an investigation by the police watchdog, the IOPC, into Charing Cross Police Station, in which officers were found to have joked about rape, domestic violence and killing black children. Nine officers involved in the case remained in the force. Two of them had been promoted. On this podcast, we've previously heard from Alistair Morgan, whose brother Daniel was murdered in 1987. That case remains unsolved, and an independent report last year found that the Met was institutionally corrupt. But Dick, who was personally censured by the inquiry for being obstructive, refused to accept that finding. There have been other cases too. The sharing of photos from the park where two black women, Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, had been murdered. And the killing of Sarah Everard by a serving officer, nicknamed Rapist by his colleagues all of which suggest that there's something deeply wrong in the culture of the Metropolitan Police, which can't be explained away by the presence of a few bad apples. Let's hear first from Koshka Duff, an academic at the University of Nottingham, who waged an eight-year battle for justice after being arrested in London in 2013. I was arrested for offering a Know Your Rights legal advice card to... Uh, a 15-year-old who was being stopped and searched. And on arrest, I was taken to Stoke Newington Police Station. And there I was strip searched quite violently because I didn't give the officers my details. I was subsequently prosecuted on charges of assaulting and obstructing the police, which I was acquitted of. And then I made a complaint against them for my treatment. And that process where they investigated themselves and found that they did nothing wrong and I had to crowdfund to take a civil action against them and eventually just last year CCTV footage 
emerged from the police station and they'd kind of sat on it up until that time, despite repeated requests from my lawyers, which showed them using what they themselves have admitted was sexist, derogatory and unacceptable language about me during and immediately after the strip search, including the custody sergeant who ordered the strip search saying, treat her like a terrorist, I don't care. And men and women officers joking about the smell of my underwear and discussing my body hair. You were simply asking to see a solicitor in the first instance, as is your legal right. You were fully equipped with your rights. You knew what you were about. Yeah, well, I think something that what happened to me really shows is how little rights on paper mean when the police are able to operate with the kind of impunity that they have. They get to decide in practice how to apply what guidelines are there or when to kind of throw that rule book out the window and treat someone like a terrorist, as they put it. So, yeah, it really shows the huge gap between the rights that we have on paper and what people who actually experience policing in practice are subjected to. And you were subject to an intimate search, which I guess must have felt pretty demeaning. You were subject to derogatory language. After this incident, how did you feel? Immediately after the strip search, I was in a lot of pain. I'd been handcuffed and on the floor of a cell with three officers on top of me. They'd been twisting my arms around and they tied my legs together and cut my clothes off with scissors. They'd hit my head off the concrete floor. I couldn't breathe because of the scarf they were pulling around my neck. When they left me on the cell floor after that, I was in shock, I was in pain and I was relieved to have survived it because while they were operating with such a sense of impunity, with such a kind of desire to punish it seemed to me to punish and humiliate me for sticking up for that young person's rights and for not giving my details that I really didn't know at the time where it was going to end. It took them eight years to settle with you. Why the delay? It took them eight years to admit that they did anything wrong at all in my case and they only apologised for the language that they used. They continued to defend the strip search itself. What's more surprising is that they ever admitted doing anything wrong at all because at every stage of the process that I experienced through those eight years, the systems um, and institutions that claim to provide accountability just showed again and again that they're completely stacked against anyone trying to make a complaint against the police. So it was years of them kind of investigating themselves, finding unsurprisingly that they found themselves completely justified. I had to read statement after statement from officers who just closed ranks and the institutions that claimed to secure accountability. I just experienced them as rubber stamping services for whatever the police did. The reason why I carried on with this case is because of how many people this happens to. Uh, Recent FOI figures from my colleague in criminology, Tom Kemp, they show that in the last five years, the Met did 172,000 strip searches, over 9,000 of those against children, which shows that this kind of degrading practice is routine. So it took them so long to admit that they did anything 
wrong because this is standard practice for them. I have no doubt that the public scrutiny and outcry around misogyny in policing since the murder of Sarah Everard, drawing attention to really institutionalised misogyny and sexual violence in policing. In that context, they fell under pressure, did a vast U-turn on my case, which they had up until that point said, this is completely normal what we did to you and no problem at all. Then suddenly it gets to the point where there's this public scrutiny on them and their kind of manoeuvre in that circumstance is to say, oh no, we made a we made a terrible mistake in this one exceptional case and suddenly to turn around and present it as exceptional. And so by apologising, they're seeking actually to legitimise themselves and to deflect public scrutiny when the reality is that misogyny and the kind of violence that I experience is absolutely normalised in policing. What hope have you got that that situation will change with a new commissioner? A simple change of personnel is not going to help. Misogyny and homophobia were rife and thriving in the force under Cressida Dick's watch. While she gave it a kind of progressive looking face, the sexualized violence I experienced was at the hands of women officers and some of the most misogynist comments came from them too. So we need to get away from thinking that just woman washing the police is going to make a difference. Instead to take concrete steps immediately to reduce the harms of policing, we need to be looking at things like properly funding mental health services and disentangling the provision of mental health care from police intervention. We need to be looking at decriminalising drugs. An overwhelming number of strip searches are being justified under the Misuse of Drugs Act, which is really a kind of abuser's charter, allowing the police to target anyone that they want to with the most violating and degrading kinds of practices. So decriminalising drugs, rough sleeping, these are prerequisites for addressing the underlying and associated harms and for tackling the kind of perennial problems of racist stop and search and racist strip search, which are now just coming to light. Dr Koshka Duff. In November 2021, the Met settled with her and unreservedly apologised for the language used while she was in custody and any distress caused. But a misconduct hearing, led by what the Met described as an independent, legally qualified chair, had previously found that an officer had reasonable grounds to justify his actions in authorising the search and found the allegations against him not proven. One of the Met's most notorious recent failures was the investigation into serial killer Stephen Port. Members of the public, such as John Pape, tried to draw their attention to what appeared to be blink deaths in Barking in East London. But the police's slow and ineffective response proved deadly. John was a friend of Gabriel Cavari, Port's second victim. Well, I first met Gabriel in, I think, July 2014. We'd met online. He was a young man from Slovakia who I believe was coming over to try and get a foothold in London. You know, I think he was coming from a, a less tolerant country. He was a young gay man, so he was coming to London, a more sort of open and tolerant place. And I could empathise with that, being gay myself. 
So I had a spare room. And at the time, he'd got a job, but he needed somewhere to stay before he was paid for that job. So I said, you can have my spare room to rent for a sort of short-term arrangement. And I did that because I felt when I met him, I got this sort of impression that he was an intelligent guy. He was very talented with languages. His English was excellent, but I believe he could also speak and write Arabic. He was very sweet-natured. And I'm sure that had he have lived, he would have led a really sort of good and interesting life. Originally, I'd said you could stay for, you know, two, three weeks, but it turned into six, I think. And we got on well, but he was always looking for somewhere more long-term to stay. And after about six weeks, he said he'd found somewhere in East London. And I'll always slightly regret not having asked him more questions about that. He moved out the next day after we'd had a last little drink. And um, I sent a few messages, you know, how's it going in Barking? I think I knew he was going to Barking. I wasn't getting a response. And then five, six days later, I think it was four police turned up at my door to say that he'd been found dead in a cemetery in Barking. I just went into shock, I think. I just remember giving them, just telling them everything I knew about Gabriel and his circumstances. They didn't tell me anything. I don't think they knew anything. So the police left, but they hadn't left me with any information. And I kept looking at Gabriel's Facebook page to see if anybody else knew that he was dead. We'd just been friends. I'd only known him for like six weeks. And it didn't seem right that I should know he was dead, but none of his family or friends did. So I contacted his former boyfriend, a man called Thierry, who was in Spain, I think, at the time. And it became clear that his former boyfriend didn't know and that his family didn't know. And when did your shock at the death of Gabriel turn into suspicion that something wasn't quite right. Early on, I think I was told on something like August 28th, 2014, and on the 3rd of September, you can see in a Facebook chat with his former boyfriend that I send a link to another unexplained death, a young man, similar age, found in similar circumstances, nothing more than about 300 metres away from the cemetery in which Gabriel is found. So I send that link to his former boyfriend and I say, you know, it looks so similar. Someone needs to ask the police about this. Because at the time I was trying to not bother the police too much. I was trying to not get in the way. So that was 3rd of September that I was making that link to the earlier death. And of course, now we know that that was Port's first victim, Anthony Walgate. And on something like the 6th of September, almost a week from being told that Gabriel was dead, I gave a statement over the phone to an officer. And I remember making that link, asking whether the two could be linked and being given a bit of a fudge response that he wasn't sure, but he thought that had been looked into and there was no link. So you tried to raise this directly yourself with the Metropolitan Police, just putting two and two together, suggesting there was a potential link, at least, between Anthony Walgate's death and the death of Gabriel Cavari. 
Yes, that's correct. And so did Gabriel's former boyfriend, Thierry. Moving on from that, Thierry and I, there was this kind of Facebook chat back and forth. Thierry had seen that somebody called John Luck had friended Gabriel on his Facebook page. He didn't immediately tell me this name, John Luck. He got into a conversation with this person. And this person painted a picture of there being a dark scene in Barking involving chemsex, older men, drugging younger men. And then Thierry, in turn, just gave me little snippets of that story. So again, in my head, I was getting bits of information about older men drugging younger men. And I think end of September, Daniel Whitworth is found in the cemetery in more or less exactly the same spot as Gabriel. Thierry tells me about that because he's contacted by Barking and Dagenham Police again. And I obviously react in shock again because that's another death. So I contacted the Met and said, is, is there any possibility this is murder? And they assured me that it wasn't. But like I said, Thierry and I are still continuing to speak to each other. And after Daniel's death, this person, John Luck, who's speaking to Thierry, again, is talking about this scene, older men drugging younger men. And Thierry takes that information to the Met. They do nothing with it. And what we know now is that John Luck was Stephen Port. And he was essentially feeding Thierry his cover story. So I personally was also getting this sort of disturbing information about a scene about older men drugging younger men and emailed Barking and Dagenham several times with links to Anthony's death, saying, you know, could this be linked to Gabriel and Daniel? Hearing about older men drugging younger men and I was concerned about what was happening to young gay men embarking. And the question here then had to be asked about the Met, about a lack of curiosity, Mm. because Thierry, like you, had told them about this alleged scene in Barking, this supposed chemsex scene. We understand that Thierry had told them about John Luck's Facebook account, and had the police checked that, they would have seen that the Facebook account for John Luck had the same IP address as Stephen Port, so a clear link between the two people, suggesting that they were, in fact, one person. And you've also got the fact that Anthony Walgate's body was found outside Stephen Port's flat, and Port was ultimately convicted for perverting the course of justice around the death of Anthony Walgate. But police still didn't tie that death to the deaths of the other two men at that stage. We had an inquest before Christmas, an eight-week-long inquest. And what was disturbing, really, to me, is the way that they seemed to actively just shut down anything that challenged their incorrect assumption that the victims willingly took a known date rape drug. And that was whether it was evidence that myself and Thierry were presenting to them, or even the evidence of their own pathologist. One of the victims was found with bruising under his arms. At his post-mortem, 
there was a pathologist and various officers from Barking and Dagenham present. And the pathologist said this bruising was consistent with third party involvement. Of course, now we know that Stevenport dragged that body. But the police officers left that post-mortem, still in the same building, came up with an alternative theory that that victim must have got that bruising through rough sex, which to my mind is stereotyping. And it came out in the inquest that they could have just gone next door to the pathologist and just said, oh, we've come up with this other theory. Do you think that's likely? Or of course, they could have just emailed the pathologist and asked. It came out that the pathologist would have said, no, that's not likely. So it's the fact that they were sort of dismissing members of the public, uh, myself, Thierry, Ricky Wormsley, who was now the third victim, Daniel's partner of four years. He essentially, in the suicide note left with Daniel, the suicide note was saying that Daniel was responsible for the death of Gabriel. But Ricky provided an alibi for Daniel, saying that they were at home together at the time when Daniel would have had to have been killing Gabriel. But the officers just didn't seem to sort of pick up on that, the significance of it. That was disturbing. It felt, it almost feels willful, the way that they were sort of shutting down or ignoring things that challenged their incorrect assumption. So all these assumptions were made, all these clues were missed, and tragically, there was a fourth victim of Stephen Poor, Jack Taylor. Yes, that's right. So I'd emailed the police multiple times, linking the deaths. Thierry had sent the link about John Luck. I even went because I sent multiple emails that were received, read, and simply ignored by the officers. I didn't get any response. So I resorted to going to LGBT plus organizations. I contacted activist Peter Tatchell, and he responded immediately with an appropriate level of concern, put me onto an organization called Gallup, who act as a go-between between the LGBT plus community and Pink News. So I emailed them again, linking the deaths, saying I was concerned about what was happening to young men, saying that I thought perhaps the gay community should be warned, saying I didn't trust the police to investigate it properly. They also went to the police and were just told absolutely categorically, there's nothing to see here, you know, leave it to us, we're the professionals. And then nine months later, Jack Taylor is murdered and found once again in the cemetery. And I will always, even though I, I can sleep at night, and I know really that I did all I could, there will, there's always a part of me that will wonder if I could have done something more. Jack Taylor is found in virtually, again, the same spot of the cemetery. And it's still, it takes the Barking and Dagenham officers weeks. It takes Jack Taylor's sisters Donna and Jen, in the wake of their brother's death, did amazing work to try and get the barking officers to finally regard those deaths as suspicious. And I've no doubt that they save lives by doing that. And the inquest into the deaths of the four men revealed that basic policing hadn't been done, that simple evidence gathering, such as examining Port's laptop, testing DNA on bed sheets on which two of the bodies were found, checking the veracity of that suicide note that you've referenced that was found on Mr Whitworth's body. 
that hadn't been done. So it's a moot point whether that was incompetent policing or underlying it was a, a homophobia because the police were determined to say that these deaths had happened in a particular way because that's the kind of behaviour we associate with gay men. Yeah, the sort of evidence of stereotyping, the way that Ricky Wormsley, Daniel's partner, was discriminated against, told he wasn't next of kin, wasn't allowed to see his partner a four-year suicide note for about six to nine months, I think. Which we can assume wouldn't happen if they were a straight couple living together. Yeah, precisely. Thierry, Gabriel's former boyfriend of three years, was giving them leads on a plate that would have led them direct to Stephen Port, but they didn't even take a statement from him. I feel that's evidence of discrimination. There was assumptions made about the lifestyles of LGBT plus people, ignorance around GHB and chemsex. I'm not going to remember it word for word, but... The definition of institutional racism given at the Stephen Lawrence inquiry in the McPherson report, something like the collective failure of an organisation to provide a professional service to a paraphrasing minority group, it can be detected in attitudes and behaviour that amount to discrimination through stereotyping, unwitting prejudice, thoughtlessness and ignorance. So I think if you co-opt that definition as a definition of institutional homophobia, then I think the Barking and Dagenham investigation ticks every box. And I was asked at the inquest by the Met's own barrister, after I'd given my testimony, would I be willing to concede that incompetence does not necessarily equate to prejudice? And my response was that I felt that the incompetence was on such a kind of a scale. There's so many officers making so many mistakes at different levels that you have to ask what lies behind that. And I think the answer is prejudice. But I also wouldn't want to take too much away from the fact that in asking that, that's the Met's own barrister. It feels like they're basically saying, we're not prejudice, we're just incompetent. That's shocking in itself, isn't it? That's a concern to all communities. But I think in an odd counterintuitive way, you almost have to hope that prejudice did play a part in the port investigation. Because if the Met were this incompetent with every serious crime, regardless of the victim's origin or sexuality, then you know, rapists and murderers would essentially be going unpoliced. What does the Met need to do next to persuade people like you and other LGBTQ plus people that it is not homophobic, that it is not prejudiced? They should acknowledge publicly that prejudice played a part in the port investigation. Uh, I think that the most culpable officers in that investigation need to be formally disciplined because I don't feel that that has happened yet and action needs to be taken. Unless you take action against officers 
who make such serious mistakes. I don't really see where the motivation is for the institution to change. John Pape. An inquest last December concluded that police failings had probably contributed to the deaths of three of Stephen Port's victims. A statement released by the victims' families said they believed that officers' actions were, in part, driven by homophobia. But while the Met apologised for its failures, it refused to accept that it was institutionally homophobic. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and you're listening to the Byline Times podcast, asking this week, what next for the Met? When Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins was arrested for murdering Sarah Everard in October 2021, Dozens of women descended on Clapham Common to take part in a silent vigil. Covid restrictions were in force at the time, but the brutal manner in which the demonstration was broken up shocked the nation. Debbie, from the pressure group Sisters Uncut, was there. It was really, really upsetting and distressing to see lots of particularly young women or people who were coming out to the streets for the first time being dragged around the field in the dark by police officers in uniforms, people being thrown in the back of police cars. It was quite harrowing. And I think for a lot of people actually in the UK, perhaps the first time they really witnessed some quite extreme police brutality. A lot of people there that wouldn't perhaps normally have come out that really got to see firsthand what it was like to be a victim of police brutality and that kind of spearheaded the next five days of action that were led by Sisters Uncut. We were there to mourn someone who had been murdered by a Metropolitan Police officer using the guise of COVID legislation and there we were at the vigil literally mourning her and the same COVID legislation was being used to brutalise young women. They were kind of being dragged through fields, separated from friends. There's the infamous image of Patsy Stevenson being held face down on the floor by police officers. It was really quite unseen violence, particularly for a group of women and non-binary people, especially who were there quite peacefully. There wasn't any hostility. There was candles and tears and fear and people trying to hold space for each other. So it's quite harrowing to watch. It's really stayed with me and a lot of other people that were there. Do you accept that the police were in a difficult situation because this was in a time of COVID lockdown when people were being encouraged to not gather in groups and that therefore a vigil was problematic for them? I don't think that, no, because I think that vigil needed to happen and the COVID legislation was so extremely vague and was essentially being used by police officers to bully communities. Under COVID legislation, we saw more stop and search than had ever happened, basically, in London, particularly targeting young black men. That legislation that they were throwing around to stop demonstrations is the same ones they were using to kind of bully and harass people. And that's what we saw at the vigil. It wasn't a concern for anyone's safety. It was just another thing to kind of push people around with. I would also say that people were doing their best to wear masks. It's quite hard to keep your mask on when you're being pulled around and pushed around. So they certainly weren't bothered about that. And the all-party parliamentary group which looked into this, the APPG on democracy and the constitution, said that the police acted on a presumption of illegality. They turned up believing that you were breaking or about to break the law. They definitely turned up expecting things from us, which I think is quite grotesque, really, when we now know how much violence stems from the Met and how much misogyny and how kind of much harassment women are experiencing for them to turn up at our peaceful protest and point their fingers at us. 
um, in hindsight, was a foolish thing to do because the fingers have turned and now it's all of their stories and their horror stories that are coming out into the mainstream because it wasn't just Wayne Cousins, as we know. It was story after story. The police do have a difficult job and are sometimes put into very violent and dangerous situations. Do you acknowledge the difficulty that they sometimes face in balancing the need to keep order with being sensitive to the people they're dealing with? I think what we have to understand about the way that the police operate is that they don't prevent anything. The police turn up after something awful has happened and often throw their weight around and cause more trauma and more pain and more violence. And what actually Sisters Uncut are hoping to do through leading further demonstrations, but also through our wider movement to start building cop watches and police intervention and bystander intervention, is that what we really need to keep women safe is bystander intervention, is if someone like me or you sees that someone's being harassed on the street, instead of calling the police, it's about our abilities to go and intervene and help keep each other safe and hold each other accountable. The less that we can call the police, the safer our communities are going to be because they often bring with them violence. I don't agree that their job is difficult. I would argue their job is extremely easy and is one that is quite lawless and is one that is built on power structures of of white supremacy and misogyny. And that's what we're constantly encountering. I think that true safety will come from our communities looking after ourselves, learning how to intervene and keep ourselves safe from police violence. Although bystander intervention in some people's eyes might look like vigilantism, might be seen by some people as potentially inflaming difficult situations. Do you know what? That's funny that whenever I get interviewed by men, they often ask me this question about vigilantism. I wonder if perhaps there's a little bit of projection there. I personally... (laughs) Not willingly. I'm a coward. (laughs) I I don't think that intervention is anything to do with vigilantism. And actually, as someone who regularly intervenes, if I see something that looks distressing or upsetting, often it isn't about turning up and throwing your weight in. It's about going up to someone who's experiencing violence. For example, if I see a woman being harassed at a bus stop and I go over to her and say, do you want to get on this bus with me? Can I put you in an Uber? Like, do you want me to walk home with you? That's not being a vigilante. I'd say it's quite the opposite. It's quite peaceful intervention. And calling the police, who love to play vigilante, is only going to escalate that situation and often end up with everyone involved experiencing violence and trauma. There are peaceful ways to deal with the horrors that we experience. And we have to start taking responsibility to do those things as humans in our society. What do you think the Met needs to do next to win the confidence of women like you? The Metropolitan Police will never win my confidence, nor will they ever have the confidence of anyone from Sisters Uncut. We are an abolitionist group and we do not believe that there should be a police state that rules us, especially with the heavy hand, as it currently does. We believe that communities should be entrusted to live their lives and look after each other. So I have absolutely no interest in what the Met is promising. I didn't think it was life-changing that Chrisida Dick stepped down because it doesn't make a difference because she steps down and someone else steps up with the same rhetoric, the same ruling and the same laws. So it's not really about the Met winning us back as far as I'm concerned. I'm just trying to think of a society that has been that has not had some kind of police force. Every state has police which enforces laws. Where I live in North London is a really 
big area for police stop and search, particularly of young black guys. And how often I see a 14 year old young black dude at the train station with seven police officers surrounding him and bullying him and coercing him into giving information he legally doesn't have to give. Or how often we see immigration vans turn up for people in our community who have lived there all their lives and suddenly they've got immigration banging on their door. That to me isn't anyone enforcing any type of justice or truth or that is just an exploitation of power, particularly with police traveling around in like, literally it feels like gangs around here, moving in packs and just targeting people that they don't like the look of. And the people they don't like the look of are queer people, people of color, working class people and people they assume don't belong in this country. So I don't know that I personally have to have the answer for our utopia, but I will do everything in my power to take little steps towards it and certainly towards having less policing of my community. That was Debbie from Sisters Uncut. And if you've got any comments on what you've been listening to, do please get in touch. The email is goldbergradio at gmail.com. That's goldbergradio at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you might also like to listen to us on Byline Radio. Just follow at Byline Radio on Twitter and join us every Monday and Thursday at noon via Twitter Spaces for what the papers don't say. Don't be put off by the technology. It is really simple to have your say. Just follow us on Twitter at Byline Radio and tune in Monday and Thursday at noon. Before we go, I just want to say thank you to Harvey White, who does so much of the legwork behind the scenes producing this podcast, and to everyone who retweets or shares news of the podcast on social media, people like Elizabeth Phillips and Yvonne. We don't have a marketing budget, so everything you can do to spread the word is really appreciated and does make a difference. This podcast is funded by subscriptions to our brilliant monthly paper, The Byline Times. You can find out how to subscribe at our equally brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And if you've already done so, many thanks. Thanks also for listening. I'm Adrian Goldberg. I'll see you next time.